Good morning, y'all. It's really fun to be here. I'm glad to be here in person. It's really fun to, for me to be dipping my toes into teaching again. It's been a long time. I've had two babies. There hasn't been a lot of time to do things like this. Um, and I just love Blacknall. Uh, we feel so loved by this congregation. You probably heard about our saga of the moving and the ruptured Achilles heel and the flood and uh, we have a beautiful new deck that the men of this church helped us build and um, lots of meals we've received and uh, and so I'm just I love this group and I'm grateful to be here today I look forward to a time I can come to women's Bible study in person every day or every week so um, but I'm glad to be here this morning and I'm extra grateful to talk about the book of Hebrews, which has always been one of my favorites. Um, I think it's a masterful piece of writing. It's a letter, but it's also a sermon, a sermon whose text is the Old Testament. And as Jen Wilkins said in one of her talks, it, it turns on the lights of the Old Testament for us. And I think it's something like what it must have been like to be one of those disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus had, well, everyone thought Jesus had died. In the resurrected, Jesus met those two disciples. And Luke tells us that he, before they knew it was Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I would love to have been there for that conversation, which maybe was something like a sermon. And I bet word got out about that, to reading of the Old Testament. And so the author of Hebrews gives us a glimpse into that reading of the Old Testament that, that shows Jesus to be the beginning, middle, and end of the whole story. And, and so we get to peek in um, and, this, and read this really beautiful, masterful sermon. So um, the passage before us today, I'm tasked to take us through Hebrews 3 uh, and 4 through verse 13 which focuses on the story of Israel's failure to trust God's voice to enter the promised land and points us to Jesus as the only one who can lead us into God's rest. So for about 15 minutes, this is like a 15 or 20 minute talk, um, I'm going to just try to help us follow the thread of this complicated argument. It's a pretty tough passage, right? It's dense. It's a complicated argument that leads us takes us through Psalm 95, takes us through Genesis, and, and ends up at Jesus, the living word, who is the only one who can lead us into God's rest. So I'm just going to kind of walk us on a journey through the author's elaborate argument through those passages and hopefully also shed light on it. I hope you'll feel some clarity by the end of this. Um, so uh, I just want to start with chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And... We do well just to stop and focus on the opening of this passage, uh, which is, therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. So we're pausing to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Therefore, and therefore, tells us to look back at what we've already learned about him. And I know in the previous weeks of the study, we've looked at Jesus as the exact imprint of God, as the son of God, the one who's greater than angels, the one whom angels worship, but the one who also was made little lower than the angels and became a human and suffered and died to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we're looking at this preeminent Jesus who is also somehow human, 
and our high priest and our atoning sacrifice. And we're fixing our thoughts on him. And the argument that this author takes us into today for this passage is that Jesus is better than angels and Jesus is also better than Moses. And for the Hebrew Christians, Moses would have been the greatest leader they'd ever had, right? He gave them the law. He gave them all their traditions. He's, he's the, one of the great fathers of their faith. He saw God face to face. He led them through the wilderness. And so to hear that Jesus is better than Moses is really saying something. It's really shocking. Um, and the way, he, the way the author begins this argument uh, is to say that Moses is simply a caretaker or servant over the house of God, whereas Jesus is a son. And not only is Jesus a son over the house of God, but Jesus built the house of God. And what is even more than that, this house is not like the temple. It's not made of bricks. It's not put together with hammer and nails. It's a house made of human hearts. It's a house of people. So Jesus is this mysterious master builder of a house that's made of human hearts. And I think it might feel odd that the author goes into this talk of buildings. I don't know if you found that a little puzzling, but I think what's going on here is that he's taking the emphasis away from law-keeping, from the Mosaic law, from the rituals of temple sacrifice, circumcision, food laws that the Hebrew Christians would have been really familiar with as former Jewish um, believers. And he's putting the focus on a relational dynamic between God and God's people. Jesus is the builder of a house that's made of people, and we can be his house if we believe in his voice and we hope in him, the author says. And so that, that probably feels pretty mysterious right now, but I think the idea to take from that is that there's this important relational dynamic between God's people and God, which has to do with believing his voice and trusting him. And it has, doesn't have to do with being in a building made with human hands and following rituals in that building, right? So we've, we've moved suddenly to the realm of hearts and to this relational dynamic of trust. And so to take us deeper into that, we can look at, uh, if you're kind of following along in, in your Bible, the, the kind of next chunk I'll look at is verses 8 to 19 of chapter 3, and emphasizes this relationship of trust, this courageous and hopeful trust in the voice of God by giving us a reading of Psalm 95. And so you probably noticed the author quotes Psalm 95 and quotes it a lot, quotes it repeatedly. Almost we might feel like a little bit too much. Uh, why so much Psalm 95? But um, the, the phrase that gets repeated over and over is, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion in the wilderness. And so as you know from your study, Psalm 95 is itself a reading of Numbers 14 and recounts the story of Israel uh, on the cusp of entering the Promised Land. The, they had sent spies in on a reconnaissance mission, and you probably know the story. Joshua and Caleb 
uh, came back with a good report. They said, let's go in the land. God promised he's going to give it to us. There are really big, juicy grapes here, right? But other people, other spies came back from the land and said, ooh, let's not go in there. There are really big people in there. There are giants in there. And if we try to go in, they're going to kill us. And so the people listened to the bad report, not the promise that God would take them into the land. And they even said, oh, I wish we had just died in the desert. Or why don't we just go back to Egypt? Let's, let's nominate another leader and go back to our slavery. And this is after God had parted the Red Sea, fed them with manna every day, led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. They didn't believe the voice of the Lord. And what kind of adds some more gravity to this is that we learn that even Moses doesn't go, get to go into the promised land. So the Lord judges Israel for their disbelief and says, you're not going to get to enter the land. Uh, the next, you'll die in the desert like you asked, but the next generation will get to enter the land. And not even Moses, the great leader of the people, gets to enter the land. And you read the passage where God asks him to speak to a rock so water will gush out, and he strikes the rock instead. And for that, that disobedience to God's voice, Moses is prohibited from entering the promised land. I've always thought that was a bit harsh. To me, that just struck me as, wow, that... This is really, really strict. And I think the author of Hebrews, I can understand the response to Israel, right? I mean, they'd experienced a lot from God. But this moment with Moses has always struck me as a bit harsh. But it's set in the context of Hebrews 3, the seriousness of the tone. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. I think the idea here is that Listening to and trusting the voice of God is really, really serious business. It's a matter of life and death. And I don't think that's something that we, we encounter every day. That's not the sort of urgent tone of our lives, but this passage, these passages and numbers can help us see that. And I think the Hebrews author is trying to communicate some of that urgency, and that's why the passage keeps saying, today, 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 if you hear his voice, do not harm your heart. Uh, and I also just want to point out something else that's interesting about this passage. Did you notice that it has three different, we're, we're working with three different texts here. So there's Psalm 95, in which is embedded Numbers 14. But Psalm 95 is embedded in this letter to the Hebrews. And just as Psalm 95 spoke to its hearers, so it is speaking to the Hebrew Christians who are hearing it at that time. And so it is spoken to you today as I read it to you, right? On February 17, 2022, at Black Mill Presbyterian Church, the voice of God is being proclaimed today, for better or for worse by me, right? And it is alive. It's alive and kicking. Psalm 95 is alive and kicking we are hearing God's voice. This isn't just a dead history lesson, a nice reminder, you know, let's go read some history and learn about Israel, try not to be like them. No, it's today if you hear his voice. And so I think the author is trying to get, get at the word being alive. There's this continued tradition 
that is passed down even centuries later. We're listening to Psalm 95. We're hearing the voice of God. And the consequence for hearing the voice of God and hardening your heart is not being able to enter God's rest. And I think that's a, also a kind of puzzling consequence. What is it? Why? <laughs> Why when we don't listen to God's voice, uh, we aren't able to enter his rest? And, and so I think for the Hebrew Christians who are listening to this passage read, this masterful sermon, probably the temptation they're looking at is not wanting to retreat back to Egypt like the Israelites, but wanting to retreat into the old ways of the temple sacrificial system. And we'll learn more about that as we read Hebrews, but they're really familiar with the Levitical laws, the Mosaic laws, get circumcised, eat the right food, sacrifice these animals. And that's an easy thing to go back to when what you're trying to do in the first century is believe in a resurrected savior and getting persecuted for it, right? And you're just having to trust this voice of the Lord and live in this totally new way. And so it would have been a lot easier to go back to something familiar, something reliable, something you feel like you could control. I do this, God does this. I do this, God does this, right? But instead you have this risky invitation to trust the voice of the Lord. I think that's what the, the Hebrew Christians are dealing with that are hearing this passage and it's really similar for us, right? I mean, we're not dealing with wanting to return to the Mosaic law, but I think the Hebrews author gets at something that's really essential about the nature of rebellion or unbelief, which is our tendency to want to set up our own salvation system. So we probably all have a kind of way that we say, no, God, I don't want to trust you. I have this other thing that I'm going to do to, to get myself saved. And um, I don't presume to know ours, but I know that uh, our you know, cultures have similar, we can have collective kind of self-salvation structures. So I think that's what we're dealing with here. Today, if you hear his voice, are you going to risk yourself on it? Or are you going to retreat back into what's familiar to you, to what you can control but if you do that, you won't enter God's rest. And so the next passage, chapter 4, kind of delves into the nature of this rest and, and why Jesus is the only one that can take us there. So I'm going to look now at, at Hebrews 4, 1 through, 1 through 10, and then we'll end by looking at the very amazing last three verses. So... Uh, Hebrews 4 begins with the idea that there remains a rest to enter. It wasn't just entering the promised land for the Israelites. There remains a rest for first century Christians to enter. There remains a rest for us as 21st century Christians to enter. And what is this rest? Well, the chapter gives us a clue by quoting Genesis. So we're interacting again with another Old Testament text. And I'm going to kind of delve here with Genesis because I think the author is saying rest is a really deep mystery. Like it goes beyond, it goes all the way back to creation. It goes beyond the law. It goes back to God resting on the seventh day. You notice in verse four, he said, 
for somewhere God has spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested from all his works. And this is more than just like chocolate and Netflix at the end of a rough day, right? I mean, I'm not knocking chocolate and Netflix. That's very important. But it's also more than the terrification of the Outer Banks, though that's very important too. And I think those things give us a glimpse about what rest is. But Genesis is talking about something a lot deeper. Um, Genesis also said, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So there's something blessed and holy about rest. And so what, what I see here is that God's rest seems to be something like a response of joy and delight in the act of creating and in the created world. It's like God has just finished a masterpiece. And he kicks back, cracks open a beer, and he's just sitting back to enjoy it. He's just like, whoa, look what I made. This is beautiful. This is amazing. I need to take a whole day just to enjoy this, right? And then God institutes that as a practice for the people of Israel. Let's always, for the rest of our lives, take a whole day just to kick back and delight in this and be satisfied with this. And we may have experienced that some in our lives, moments of Sabbath, like, I mean, I was just thinking of some ordinary examples, but maybe you've had like a really good feeling after getting a great haircut. You just walk out of the salon and you're just like, yes, this is a great haircut. Or you cook a really delicious meal and you just have satisfaction in that creation. Or after Saturday morning chores, the bathroom sink faucet is just shining really brightly for like, you know, the five seconds that it's going to be clean, and you can really, really delight in that. And these are simple moments of creativity and delight in created things, but I think they can be signposts. Maybe a deeper one is the delight you might feel when watching children play or sleep. There's a kind of delight in just in children, whether they're our own or other people's, and, and we can experience this kind of restful delight in the created world. But Genesis also evokes the fall, right? Whatever, what has broken this experience of rest and satisfaction and joy and delight. And that, that first rebellion, that first rebellion against God's voice that broke the trust, that broke the delight that we can experience in creation. And so we experience a kind of restlessness now. I mean, as a kind of everyday, everyday experience of the human condition, a feeling of never being enough, always needing to be and do more, never being good enough. Work becomes onerous, work becomes toil, work becomes a way to get approval. We experience loss. Sometimes we experience loss that feels like it can't be redeemed. We experience sin. And so we know we're not in that state of perfect rest. Um, another way to look at it could be Adam and his wife being in, in the garden naked and unashamed, right? They're experiencing unbroken delight, unselfconscious trust in their creator, in each other, in themselves, in their relationship with the created world. And so I know I went deep there, and it might, <laughs> it might seem like I went off text, but I think that's what the author wants to help us to envision. 
The promised land is something like this unbroken delight in God and in the creative world. And it's, we lost it. How do we get in? How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to Eden? How do we get there? Moses couldn't get there. How do we get there? And so then in verse 11, the author gives us three easy steps to get back to God's rest, right? No. (laughs) There are never three easy steps. Verse 11 is my favorite verse in this passage because, in uh, chapter 4, verse 11, because it is so, so puzzling. It says, now let us make every effort to enter that rest. That seems to me like contradiction, like it's asking us to do something. Well, I love that in your study, the, the question in the study guide, for those of you who are following it, it just says, what do you think the author is asking you to do here? I don't know if you remember that moment in the study, but I would pay attention to what you wrote there or maybe talk about that in your small groups. What do you think the author is asking you to do here? Make every effort to enter that rest. What could it mean to make effort to enter rest? And I think we're given a kind of mystery or paradox here for a reason, something that is not just an easy three-step plan, because we are meant to be driven to Jesus. And so verses 12 and 13 are the, the climax of this passage and kind of the point to which everything is leading us to get us back to the rest of God. And those begin famously, the word of God is a double-edged sword, living and active. So we're back to that living word again. There's something about putting ourselves under the knife. Something about getting under the knife leads to rest. I mean, these are formidable verses. It says we're naked and exposed before the one to whom we have to give an account. The word of God divides the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It sounds scary. It sounds like a place of judgment. But this is where the author of Hebrews shocks everyone. And as we read, I think as we read the whole book, we'll appreciate this more. You would expect the sacrificial lamb to go under the knife. You would expect the sacrificial lamb to be the one to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. And yet, Jesus himself was the one who went under the knife. And so suddenly, this instrument of judgment can become something like, I would say a really good way to think about this would be that the double-edged sword is actually more like a physician's scalpel. And we ourselves are being invited to go to this operating table under the word of God. And he's not going to judge us, but he's going to do surgery. And our unbelief, our evil unbelieving heart that the author talks about earlier, our lack of trusting God, if that's like a cancer inside of us, the physician with his scalpel, the scalpel of the word, is going to cut that out. And so it's not like we have something to do. We need surgery. We need to be healed. We need to come before, be exposed before 
the formidable double-edged sword of God's word, which turns out to be a place of healing for us because Jesus, our high priest, went there before us. So there's something about hearing the voice of God and letting it expose us, letting it reveal our self-salvation project that is what really leads us into God's rest. And I, I just want to testify to this. I, I hope it helps to tell a story from my life. I have had the grace to be exposed to the knife of God. And some of you know my story. But I, so I would say my self-salvation project was, has been perfectionism. And that sounds nice and pious, right? There's a thing, but it, it really is not. It's really deadly. Uh, I was following a really demanding false god of perfection that um, seemed to serve me for a while. But then in my early 30s, I was in the middle of a PhD program. Uh, I had been through my fifth breakup in a decade. I was really, really, really lonely. And by the grace of God, my self-salvation project of scholastic and religious achievement just stopped working. I couldn't finish papers. I couldn't teach class. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I sensed God inviting me to quit, to quit my program, to quit my job, to quit all my ministry. It was really scary. It was very clear and it was very scary. And I, I realized eventually, though, that he was asking me to go on a sabbatical, to live on my kind of meager savings that would take me through about a year and just live exposed and vulnerable under his word. And I, I, without my self-salvation project, which was like, oh, I'm a PhD student, I'm really good at school, or I'm a really good volunteer in this church ministry, those things that were kind of propping me up. Without those, I was exposed, and I met Jesus. <laughs> I was able to encounter him. And that year of my life was a time of not hearing the judging voice of God, not the false God that demands perfection, but the really kind, tender voice of Jesus, the merciful high priest that the author of Hebrews describes. And I hadn't really, I was a Christian, but I hadn't really heard that before. I hadn't really met him. And that ongoing encounter with the living God, the sweet and tender living God, it basically melted my heart. If you want to think about a soft heart, I, I, was, I was healed. He taught me to receive love and give love in a way that I think has really redeemed my life. I get to be married. I get to have babies. Um, I get to be free when I teach rather than um, feeling like I'm, I need to be perfect. And so there's a real healing experience that wasn't just... No, it didn't happen in a day. It was an ongoing process. But to me, that was, that was the freedom of coming under the knife of God, under the physician's scalpel, and letting him divide the thoughts and intentions of my heart and expose the self-salvation project. And that's what, that's what the Hebrews author is getting at. If you want to get to that rest, you have to get yourself before the word of God. And that's not... <laughs> Uh, there's not a five-step process for that. It's, it's not even something I think there's an easy application for today. And so, but what I, do, what I do know is that 
the author of Hebrews is right to start out the, the passage, to start out the sermon by saying, let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who heard the voice of God and responded with courage, even unto death. He heard the voice of God responding with faith. He heard the voice of God responding with hope. And he got to the other side. He got to the promised land. He got to rest. And so he can lead us there because he's been there. And being with him is being there. And so let's fix our thoughts on him. I don't want you to leave this talk today or this Bible study this morning thinking you somehow have to muster up a lot of faith or muster up a lot of hope or muster up a lot of courage. I think this passage is about listening to Jesus, exposing ourselves to Jesus. So I'm just going to pause now for about 30 seconds, which will probably feel long because we don't often have 30 seconds of silence. Maybe we, we kind of do during confession time, but 30 seconds to just put ourselves before Jesus and just listen. Um, and I'll just, today, I'll say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harm your heart. And then I'll close us in an out loud prayer. Let's go before Jesus. Jesus, our tender and merciful high priest, we ask you to speak to us. Let us hear your voice and let us be healed by your wounds. Thank you for your tender love. Thank you for being a pioneer into God's rest. We entrust ourselves to you and are so grateful to be able to pray in your name. Amen.